All right, good afternoon. It's good to see all of you. Um, welcome to Zoe Church. Uh, if you're new or visiting, uh, we want to welcome you. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here, if you don't know me. Um, and we are right now going through a series on the church. So if you are new or visiting, this could be good for you. Um, mostly, though, it's for people who are a part of this church. Uh, things have been changing a little bit. Church has been growing a little bit. So we want to kind of consolidate and make sure we're on the same page. So we're doing this series a topical series on the church, but we're still trying to make it expository, trying to make it come from the Bible. So that's why we're not just talking about, you know, what is the church and what is the church supposed to do, etc., kind of topically. But instead, what we're doing is we're walking through all the metaphors that the New Testament gives for the church. We're going to let God explain what the church is with his own divine inspired word pictures that he's given us. So last week, we started the series in Matthew 16, talking about the first instance of the word church in the New Testament, ecclesia, which means the assembly. Today, we're actually going to dive into the first image. So if you could open with me in your, uh, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and we'll be in chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3, give you a second to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 16 and 17, okay? So just a couple of verses, really, but we'll be jumping around a little bit. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, and this is what he says. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this afternoon. And we know as we just sung that you know us each by name. And God, I know that every single person who is gathered here right now is here because of you. God, that it's no accident. God, that in your plan, you have brought them to hear your word. God, and I pray, God, that you would help us to hear it. And God, we know that there are people who are a part of our fellowship. God, who who are sick. God, we pray for healing for them, that they might rejoin us soon. We know that there are those maybe who are strain a little bit or even wandering. God, I pray, Father, that you would draw their hearts back to us and back to you. But God, I pray especially for those who are gathered here right now. God, your church, the assembly. God, I pray that you would give us a higher view of what church is supposed to be. We have all these ideas, God, about what church should look like and what we should be doing. And and maybe we have a lot of criticisms, God, of the failings of the church. But God, when we read your word, we see that the church is something glorious to you. That the church is something that you love and that we are the church. So God, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you'd speak to us through your word. I pray that you would honor your son during this time. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Today, we're going to start with a little poll, okay, a little informal poll. I would appreciate your participation, but if you don't, I'm not going to be surprised at all. But, okay, it's just a simple two questions. Okay, first, how many of you prefer Coke to Pepsi, meaning you like Coke more? Okay, a lot of you guys, a lot of you guys. How how about the other way around? So how many of you prefer Pepsi to Coke? Okay, we got like the Pepsi P with some Pepsi people out here. RC Cola, anybody? No, I'm just kidding. The reason why we're starting with this, I'm sure some of you guys don't really have a horse in this race. It's fine. But you guys participated a lot more than I thought. So thank you. Praise God. So the reason why I ask why I bring this up is because in 1985, okay, this is kind of the intro story. In 1985, Pepsi had been overtaking Coke for 15 years straight. Okay, if you know your history, it was a little while ago, but Coke had been losing market share. Coke was dominant, but it had been losing market share to its main rival, Pepsi Cola, for 
15 straight years. And a big part of that was because a few years earlier, Pepsi introduced this new brilliant marketing campaign called the Pepsi Challenge. Do you guys remember this? Anyone remember these commercials? So it was simple. Okay, it was very simple. What they would do is they would go to big public places like malls or shopping centers, arenas, and they would set up a table and they would have two unmarked cups on the table. It was super simple. And in one cup would be Coke and in the other cup would be Pepsi, okay? And they would invite people up, random strangers, and the Pepsi representative would say, okay, why don't you try each of these two cups and let me know which one on camera is the better one, is the one that you prefer. And... This was real, okay? They weren't plants. But during the Pepsi challenge, what happened was an overwhelming number of random people preferred Pepsi. So they filmed these challenges as commercials. They were putting out the Pepsi challenge everywhere they went. And it was killing Coke because real people were preferring, in a real taste test, Pepsi over their product. It was great advertising. And so by 1985, it had been maybe like 10 years since this campaign had really taken off. And by this year, 1985, Coke had found their answer, they thought. And the date was actually April 23rd, 1985. Coke today will say this is a day that lives in Coke infamy. But on April 23rd, 1985, they launched the answer to Pepsi's challenge. It was called New Coke. Some of you guys remember New Coke. It was uh, because of the immense pressure they were feeling. They decided to jettison the historic, legendary, top-secret classified recipe of Coke that was from like the 1800s. It's a very old recipe. They threw it out, and they came up with something completely new. Now, New Coke was sweeter Some of you guys have tasted New Coke. It was sweeter. New Coke was new, hence the name, and people like new stuff. And most importantly, in top-secret taste tests that they were conducting in their labs behind closed doors, Coke had found that their New Coke recipe overwhelmingly defeated Pepsi in head-to-head blind taste tests. And yet, go to any store in the world today, literally anywhere, You will not find a single can, bottle, or soft drink dispenser of New Coke. It doesn't exist. You know why? Because everybody hated New Coke. It was such a failure that it doesn't even exist anymore. Now, why are we talking about this? Well, we live in a time where we are told by many, and I'm sure you've heard it, okay, if you live in the world, that the church needs to change to stay relevant. That the church needs to, needs to change even if we are to survive. Because when we run the numbers, we see that the church has been losing market share, you could say, for many years straight, more than 15 years straight now. The stats show that church attendance in America is in consistent decline. In fact, in just the past 10 years, the number of people who identify as Christian in this country has dropped a whopping 12%. That's thousands and thousands of people. Three in 10 adults now say that they have no uh, religious affiliation whatsoever. It's an unprecedented and rapid change in the United States. And it would, it would seem that a scary amount of people are taking the no organized religious challenge and they find that they like the taste a little bit better. Now, things have been trending this way for years, decades even, and Christians have been sounding the alarm The issue really isn't that it's happening or not happening. The issue is, okay, this is happening. This is a problem. We feel the pressure. What are we supposed to do about it? And the church has responded. Christians have responded. One of the big ways is with the seeker-sensitive church growth movement. It's kind of like if you can't beat them, join them. It was all the rage. Find out what people like and cater Christianity to those preferences, entertainment-wise and value-wise. If they like sports, make a sports ministry in your church. If they like certain kind of music, make the worship band sound like it. If they need child care, then start a daycare at your church. You could say, really, it was all about attraction. It was really about making the recipe sweeter. And to a certain extent, it worked. In some of the churches that did this, 
uh, a lot of people ended up coming to the church, and these churches became mega churches. They became huge. You had a lot of people getting into the pews. But if you look at the overall numbers, things kept on trending down. Maybe it helped those churches that really pulled it off well. But overall in America, the numbers kept going down. So others have said, okay, maybe that's not really helping at a deeper level. So you've had all these silver bullets that have been offered. Solutions to what we should do as Christians. This or that. If we just do these things, if we can get on board, then everything will be fine. There was a time where every church was trying to be missional. I don't know if you guys remember this. This was kind of a shorter fad. But basically what it was is where are the people going? They're going to Starbucks and they're talking about life. So we need to kind of get into that space. So pastors, they grew goatees, right? We started serving church. I mean, coffee at church. Turn the lights down. Try to turn church into Starbucks. And there's nothing wrong with trying to be missions minded. I think that there was a good impulse to that. But it didn't change anything. I think people realized that they could just go to Starbucks instead of going to church. Why would I go to church when I could just go there? And I love coffee as much as anyone else, but it was a fad. Some people said small groups. They called them cell groups. I think that they were thinking, okay, terrorists are really successful with their cells. Can't we do something like, I don't know where that came from, but that's, I think, what they were thinking. So let's shrink the church down, and we're, we're going to get into these smaller groups of closer community, and that's going to change everything. And small groups are great, but that didn't change everything. Multi-site, okay, we have these clearly gifted leaders. Let's spread their influence. That didn't change things. House churches, let's go back to Acts 2. Let's just copy the locale, the venue. That didn't change everything. None of these approaches proved to be the end-all, be-all. And so you had a lot of people, a lot of people saying, forget church. I mean, church is fine. Go to church on Sunday. Be involved in church. Uh, But, you know, worship services and buildings and kind of the religious trappings of church, it's not enough. We need nonprofits. We need movements. We need crusades outside of the church. We need conferences. We need to make sure that we focus on the family now. Forget the organized religious unit. Let's just focus on your own family unit. We need to get onto campuses. We need something else, something more, something better. Church isn't enough. Now, the truth is we're all feeling the same pressure. I mean, my job, I think, makes me feel the pressure in more ways than one. Christianity is getting harder. Church is getting harder. And for some of us, we look around at the world we live in, and it's so different than what we grew up in or even what we saw just a few decades ago. Some of us who have young kids, this is like the number one thing we're thinking about all the time. Uh, What kind of world are my kids going to grow up in? All these temptations, all these pressures, indoctrination, etc., etc. There's the internet, there's phones, there are people who are trying to teach them other things. So what do we do? It would seem like all the new Cokes that we've tried to come up with haven't been working that well. So what do we do? Well, we're in the book of 1 Corinthians. This is why we're in the book of 1 Corinthians. This is why we're starting here. And you might be surprised that I'm going to say this, but 1 Corinthians is probably the craziest book in the Bible. Okay. I mean, it's, it's a very crazy book. Now, the thing about 1 Corinthians is that the Apostle Paul who wrote it, he actually knew the Corinthians very well. So he wrote letters to all different, all these different churches. Some of them he didn't know personally. Some of them he didn't start. But the Corinthian church, he started and he spent a lot of personal time there. So he was tight with the Corinthians, which is kind of crazy, like I said, because despite his personal relationship with the Corinthians, the Corinthian church was probably the hardest church for him to deal with. Out of all the churches that Paul had a relationship with, Corinth was the one that probably gave him the most trouble. And if you read 1 Corinthians, that's what the letter is about. It's basically Paul addressing all these different issues, all these different problems. You guys are doing this. What about this? we got to talk about this. If there's any church, therefore, in the Bible that would seem to prove that the church is ineffective, that the church isn't enough, that maybe we need to think outside the church, it would be Corinth, and yet, and yet, when we read the letter of 1 Corinthians, and we look at the images that Paul gives us of the church, we see that for Paul, 
the church isn't just plan A. It's plan A through Z. The church is it. And Paul paints for us our first picture of the church in this series. And it's a glorious picture. It's not that the church is perfect, okay? But the church is far more important, far more central, and far more crucial in God's plan than almost any of us give it credit for, including me. So I hope, my hope is that in these two verses that we're going to look at, just two verses in this packed book, that we will come away with a higher view of the church because a higher view of the church is a more accurate view of the church. So let's get into it. Three points from the text. First, the image. The image. We need to start with the actual picture, the actual image, the metaphor of the church that Paul uses. And the point is about seeing the church as God wants us to see it as a temple. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So the image is of a temple, specifically God's temple. Now, okay, we've actually talked about God's temple quite a bit recently. If you were here during our Advent series, during the frankincense message, we talked about the temple and we talked about worship and things like that. But by way of reminder and by way of explanation, God's temple, okay, just to put it out there, was where God chose to manifest his presence. God is everywhere. Hey, God is in heaven. God is omnipresent. And yet God chose to manifest his presence in one location on earth. And it was the temple in Jerusalem. It was a physical structure in Israel. And if you wanted to get closer to God, you would have to actually travel to get closer to the temple that he lived in. Now, temples were not unique to Judaism. In the ancient world, all the pagan gods had their temples, and the idea was fairly similar. It was a building where you could draw near to the divine. Okay, let me explain it this way. Temples were what is called a liminal space. A liminal space, L-I-M-I-N-A-L. And what liminal means simply is something that is in between. Okay, something liminal is at the border between two separate things, something that connects. So that's what a temple was. It was a liminal space in between heaven above and earth where we are, between God above and humans like we are. Temples were liminal spaces. So let's start here, okay, with what a temple is in general. Because the metaphor is not going to help us that much if we don't really get what's being compared, okay? So we got to understand what the comparison is. And I think temples might be kind of fuzzy for a lot of us. Okay, how many of you guys here have been to a temple recently? Hopefully not too recently, right? How many of us, I mean, considering the religious background of many of us in this room, how many of us have ever been in a temple ever in our lives? I mean, maybe you've been there for, I don't know, a field trip or something. Maybe you went for a wedding or a funeral of someone maybe of a different religious background. But generally speaking, if you grew up in America and you're, you grew up in the church as a Christian, you probably never even went to a temple before. The comparison actually confuses us before it clarifies for us. So let's talk about temples. Now, I actually went to a temple pretty recently. Um, some of you guys, I feel like you lost your confidence in me right now. It's not like I got a second job there. Okay. I just visited. What happened was, uh, one of my grandmother's sisters passed away a few years back and, uh, my grandma was a Christian, but her sister, um, really she was a nominal Buddhist. She wasn't into Buddhism at all. Um, really, but because she wasn't anything else, they had the memorial service at this Buddhist temple in Los Angeles. So I was there. Uh, because for family and everything. And of course, I didn't participate in any of the uh, religious Buddhist things going on. But I did want to help out. So they gave me the programs for the memorial. And I stood outside the temple. So the temple's right behind me. And there's some stairs right here, just like this. And I had the, the programs. And I was passing them out to our family, right, who's coming and her, her friends. Just a few of them were left. Um, but while I was standing there, a very strange thing happened. All of a sudden, it's kind of like out of the corner of my eye, I saw this movement. And this guy is sprinting from the street at full speed toward me. It was shocking to me because he was coming. So I thought he might like punch me or something. I wasn't sure what he was going to do because most people don't run up to people that quick. But as he got closer, I realized he wasn't running up to me. 
per se. He was running up to the temple. And he was just some random guy. Um, and I was just wearing a suit, okay, a regular suit. I wasn't wearing, like, robes or anything. But I think he thought I, like, worked at the temple or something. And he got in front of me, and he took off his sweatshirt, which also made me feel very strange. Um, but I think he, he, it was almost like a holy ground kind of thing. He wanted to, like, be presentable. And then he, he started, like, saying something. And I don't know what he was saying. I think he was praying or chanting or, or something um, before me. And I think he was kind of waiting for me to give my blessing to him or something. I was like, hey, man. There's a funeral going on, and I don't go here. I, pastor in Texas, if you want to talk about that, he just ran away. So I don't know. That was all that happened. I don't know what he said. I don't know what he wanted. But here's what I realized in that experience. Because I don't go to temples usually. I, I don't belong to a religion where we have a temple. But what I realized was for people who believe in such things, temples are a place of deeply religious significance. It's the place that really matters. And it's the people who are on that holy ground that really matter. And there's this expectation that when you approach, you are somehow stepping into liminal space. Like when you approach the temple, you're actually drawing nearer to God than you would be anywhere else. And that's because that's what temples by definition actually are. So here's a follow-up question. You guys ready? We'll, We'll move on from this soon. This is for the Christians in the room. Okay, here's a question for you guys. You don't have to raise your hand. But what are churches by definition now? Temples by definition are a place where you draw closer to God. What are churches? Because here's what I saw online. I googled the definition of church, and here's the first thing that came up. A church is a building used for public Christian worship. It doesn't actually sound that different than a temple. By that definition, it's just a Christian temple. It's a place where you go to worship God, a place. And this is how we use the English word church so often today, a place where we come to draw near to God, to pray to God, to sing to God, to worship God. And this is reflected in our conversations. I get texts all the time. Hey, you know, I forgot something at church. Can you get it for me? I'm like, what am I, man? Your servant? <laughs> I am your servant, right? Servant and leader. I get text from Eric and James, right? Are you at church yet? It's starting in three minutes. Uh, I'm here. Okay. I'm just in my car still. That's not wrong. Okay. To talk about church as a building. It's common American vernacular. But here's the problem with this confusion of language. In the Bible, by definition, the church isn't a place. The church is a people. The word for church in Greek is ekklesia. It means assembly. What the church is, is the assembling of the people of God. And understand this, okay? In the book of 1 Corinthians, it's written to the church at Corinth, in Corinth. And the Corinthians only knew this definition of church. And when they assembled to worship as the church, they didn't have a building. There wasn't a huge building in Corinth that said First Church of Corinth. No, there was nothing like that at all. Wherever they met, in a home, maybe outside, that was the church because the people were there. And Christianity, it was new. Right? They didn't have all of the things that we have now. It was taking the world by storm, but it was still a fledgling movement. So it was worlds apart from 21st century Dallas, Texas, where we have these huge campuses, where we have these buildings on every corner that are labeled church. Now, what happened from there to here is that Christianity grew. It became more widely accepted. And then it even became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And Christians constructed church buildings. And then they constructed huge cathedrals made of stone and stained glass and precious metals. And some of you have been to these buildings, to these places. And they are wonderful. They're designed to give you a sense of the awe and grandeur of God. But the problem is because churches became these buildings, these beautiful buildings, that we got kind of mixed up. And now today, so many Christians, we think that church is a place that we go to. That stepping onto the campus of a church is like stepping onto holy ground. It's why people who cuss like sailors everywhere else will go, oh, can't say that here because they're on the campus of a church. It's why people who are at their wits end decide 
to drive all the way to church, even if it's not Sunday, just to a church building so that they could pray to God when they could just pray at their house, right? We've confused the metaphor. See, hear what Paul's saying. Do you not know that you, not you meet at, but you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? You know, let me put it, let me make it concrete, hopefully. In 2012, I went to Israel on this trip for a few weeks, and it was incredible. I think the most incredible part was that I actually got to step onto the same, uh, into the same places that you read about in the Bible. I could step into the story, as it were, right? I was walking in places where Jesus walked and where David walked and where, all, you know, all these different things. I remember we went to the Valley of Elah. Um, uh, you might not remember this, but that's where a young shepherd boy with five smooth stones defeated a Philistine giant. I was in that valley and, and we're walking through this valley and there's this dried riverbed. And I'm like, this is crazy, right? And our tour guide was like, you can actually take some of these stones, you know? So being biblical, I took five, right? Because that's what David did. I took five. Uh, but after I took it and I was like, this is amazing, man. I'm like, Stepping, I'm like reaching into the same river as David. And he was like, actually, tourists took all the stones years ago. So the Israeli government actually has to ship in stones and they recreate the river every few years. So he's like, these probably arrived like a few months ago. So I just left them. I was like, forget it. These are not even real. But I thought it was cool. But by far the craziest thing, the craziest thing to me was going where Jesus specifically was. And I remember, I think the craziest experience specifically for me is we took a boat out onto the Sea of Galilee, okay? And we were just out on this boat and we're out on the water. It's like going on any lake. It's like going on Lake Louisville or something. But then it struck me when I was out there, Jesus actually walked on this water. Blew my mind. So I had this Gatorade bottle and I rinsed it out and I took some of the Sea of Galilee back with me. Uh, and I still have a little bit of that today. Uh, most of it evaporated because I didn't do a good job of sealing it. But I really thought, you know, almost like this is holy water. I mean, this is the Sea of Galilee. But I was working on this sermon this week, and my friend had preached through 1 Corinthians, uh, the entire book. And I said, oh, I wonder what he said about 1 Corinthians 3, 16, and 17 in the temple. So I listened to a sermon, and he started talking about Israel, just like I was thinking about. And he mentioned how he went to Israel a few years back and how he marveled at all these places and that he had read about in the scriptures, all the buildings. He, he had marveled at the sacred ground. But then one day, he said, he went to the site of the crucifixion. And we don't know exactly which hill is Golgotha now. The, the landscape has changed. But there's two places, basically, where we think one of these places is it. Okay? And he went to both, but he went to one of them. And he was like, I can't believe that I am standing on the hill where the Son of God died for my sins. He's like, it's unbelievable. It's insane. So he, he walked a little further away to like a little garden. He's just sitting there by himself. He said he saw a church, a church group come up to the same garden. Not, not too far away, not too close. And they were English speaking in Israel. And, and they gathered around and they started to sing, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then this is what he said. He said, as he was sitting there in the garden, blown away that he had stood on the hill of Calvary, he said he felt rebuked. He said, I felt like a fool. I'm out here, a preacher, gawking at these places, at, at this dirt, as if these places were where God dwelled. But don't the scriptures say that God does not dwell in places made with human hands? And then he looked over at that church, just a bunch of ordinary people gathered together, singing without high production, not in a building. And he remembered what the word of God actually says, that God was not on that little hill, that God was actually within those people. That they were the dwelling place of God. That where they gathered was holy ground. You should visit Israel. I recommend it. It's incredible. But not because any place there is holy. Jesus was there. It's true. 
But if the Bible is true, then Jesus is right here. Right here. The church is the temple of God. And this means we need to have a higher view of the church. And we should be aware that when we gather, wherever we are, we're in the very presence of the living God. God is here when we are here. Even because we are here. Sounds almost off when you put it like that. But that's what the text says. That's how God decided to do things. That he would manifest his presence within his new holy of holies, which is the gathered people of God. He used this image of a temple for a reason. Not that it's the building. It's us. We are the temple. So, before we move on to the second point, before we get into the next thing, how do you approach the temple? How do you approach the gathered saints? How do you approach the assembly? What are your thoughts on Christian fellowship and the communion of the people of God? Do you view church as optional, generally good but inconvenient, as a burden to your already packed schedule, as a place where you can learn about some stuff, as a vehicle for your own aspirations? I want to serve and rise up in leadership. Or do you view it as life-giving? as a respite from the fallen world around us? Do you view it as what it truly is? The place on earth where we can go to meet God. The theological reality is however you view church, it actually says a lot about how you view God. And maybe you didn't know this, but now you do. Okay, now you're accountable to it because I told you. The spirit of God lives here, and this leads to the second point, the indwelling. The image is the church is a temple. What does that mean? The indwelling, the indwelling, which reminds us of the bigger picture going on here. Look at verse 16 again. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Who is Paul talking to? He's talking to the Corinthians. What do we know about the Corinthians? They were in Corinth. What do we know about Corinth? What do you guys know about Corinth? Could you find Corinth on a map? Do you know what country Corinth is in? Sometimes it blows me away. Like, I don't really see this when I read the Bible. I have to look at a map sometimes. But the Roman Empire is big. And these cities, these churches that Paul writes to, they're all over the place. They're hundreds of miles away. Corinth was very far from Israel. Corinth was in Greece. The Corinthians were Greeks. And we know a thing or two about Greece. In fact, by way of illustration, let's talk about one of the most famous events in Greek history, the Battle of Thermopylae. You guys know that battle? They make movies about it. The Battle of Thermopylae in 480 BC, Xerxes, king of Persia, and the Persian Empire decided that they wanted to invade Greece and take it over. Taking over most of the world already. Why not Greece? Right? So they start pouring into Greece, and Thermopylae, also called the Hot Gates, was kind of the small part of land where the Greeks decided to take their stand, where the numbers didn't matter as much, where they could kind of meet this overwhelming force with their small band of Greek warriors, okay? So they sent 7,000, and the Persians, Herodotus estimates a million soldiers. Some people estimate 3 million. So it was a lot. They don't know exactly how many, but it was a huge force versus a relatively small force. They fought for seven days. The Greeks did their best, but it was laughably lopsided. And after seven days, they realized we can't win this. Okay, we're going to have to fight another day. Hopefully we'll live to fight another day. So a king of Sparta named Leonidas, I know you guys probably have heard of this name before, but Leonidas stays with 300 Spartans to hold off the Persians and to allow everyone else to retreat to get ready for another battle later. Okay, do, do you see what I'm saying? Probably know about it from movies and such. Here's what I'm getting at. The 300 Spartans who stay behind, at that point, they knew that it was hopeless. Okay? They knew that they couldn't win. They knew that they were sacrificing themselves, that they would die for sure. And the Spartans, if you know anything about them, they were the elite warriors of the ancient world. They were by far the best fighters. And yet, when it's only 300 of you, it doesn't matter. The battle was beyond them. 
And if you put yourselves in their sandals for a second, I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, it's like, okay, I guess we're just going to die now. Like, we are going to fight this battle. There's no way we can win unless there's a miracle. But I'm basically never going to see my family again. I'm not going to see tomorrow. Now, why do I bring this up? Corinth was one of the farthest Greek cities from the hot gates. And yet Corinth was Greek. So the Corinthians, they sent people too. Out of the 7,000, according to records, 400 were Corinthians. Herodotus says that they sent 400 soldiers all the way, hundreds of miles to fight alongside their countrymen. So the Corinthians, okay, the Greeks, this is part of their history. They knew this story. But I'm not bringing it up just for historical benefit. The reason why is because we dropped into the third chapter of 1 Corinthians, okay? We haven't been preaching this entire book, so this is new to most of us. But let me tell you something about the current situation that the Corinthian Christians were facing at this time. Corinth, at this point in history, was maybe the biggest city in Greece, the most important. Maybe Athens is up there. But in the Roman Empire, Corinth was one of the major cities in the entire empire. Okay, hundreds of thousands of people, major center of trade and culture. It was sophisticated. It was rich. They held an alternative to the Olympic Games in Corinth. And, and Corinth was a place of all different sorts of people. And because it was Greek, of course, there was the Temple of Aphrodite that towered over the city. It was built on a hill. But there are all these pagan uh, temples, all these different religions, and, and these different temples. Like the Temple of Aphrodite, for instance, uh, they had a thousand men and women courtesans, they called them, who worked at the temple, but they were essentially called prostitutes, okay? They were sex workers, and basically the way that the, the Greek system worked at this time was if you wanted to draw closer to God, then you sleep with one of these prostitutes. It was very twisted and crazy, but this is where the Corinthians lived, in the shadow of this temple, Surrounded by all these people, they were a small minority. There were temptations everywhere. The cares of this world were ever-present. And in Corinth, at this point, Christianity was not powerful at all. Not socially. The church was made up of people who weren't the most sophisticated or powerful or of the nobility, First Corinthians 1. They had very little influence, if at all. So what I'm getting at is if you, if you feel like Christianity is getting harder in America, that our numbers are shrinking, that our enemies are gaining strength around us, the Corinthians at this point had it worse than we have ever had it as American Christians, ever. I mean, can you imagine being a Corinthian Christian? You'd feel like you're at Thermopylae every day. You're not even entertaining Okay, the notion that if we can just put on a good program, that we can win Corinth for Christ. You're so small, so not influential. It's a humongous city that's ambivalent toward Christianity at best, antagonistic at worst. So Paul doesn't say, you guys, you guys need to strategize up, okay? How about starting up a Christian Olympics? And why don't you do that right next door? Does he bemoan the fact that the city is changing and that it's not as Christian as it used to be? Does he say we need to try to lobby uh, the Roman Caesar to make temple prostitution illegal? Okay, get lobbying, God. He doesn't because he knows that they can't win this way. They can't win those battles. Now, okay, don't get me wrong. Okay, it's not wrong to try to do Christian ministries. Okay, I'm not saying that. It's not wrong to try to lobby the, the powers that be. That's not wrong at all. We live in a different time, a different context. But here's what I am saying. And here's what the Corinthians would have got. Christians are constantly looking for something else. If only we can just latch onto this, then everything will just change. A new best-selling book, a new ministry strategy. Again, a new gifted leader, someone who can lead us to victory. But read the New Testament in context. Paul doesn't ever tell the church to put their faith in their own cleverness or the cleverness of people or in their own giftedness and the giftedness of people or in their own strategies or the strategies of people or in themselves at all. Because the battle isn't something that we can win on our own. Because the war isn't against flesh and blood. 
Did we forget this? Ephesians 6.12, what does it say? For we do not wrestle against flesh and against blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There are a lot of gifted people in the church. There are really good ideas that people have in the church. There are parachurch ministries that are doing great things. Don't get me wrong, but the Spartans were the best fighters in the ancient world, and they didn't stand a chance. You know why? Because the battle was beyond them. And Paul is saying the battle is beyond us. It's a spiritual battle against sin in this world, against Satan in the spiritual realm and his forces, and even against our own flesh, which seeks to hold us back. We need something stronger and better and more. And that's exactly what we have. Verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple? And what does that mean? It means that God's spirit dwells within you. The spirit of the living God, the spirit that was hovering over the face of the waters in creation, that spirit dwells within his church. The Spirit is the author of divine revelation, the one who wrote the word of God. He leads us into the truth. The Spirit is the one that can bring conviction of sin and of righteousness. What that means is the Spirit is the only one that can change people from the inside out. The Spirit is the one that transforms Christians from one degree of glory to the next into the image of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Spirit is able to do the things that we cannot do. See, Christians are always looking for a silver bullet, but God has already given us everything that we need. Look, okay, in our scripture reading, Exodus 33, we read it. Moses is talking to God. They just got out of Egypt. They're going to the promised land. And God says, I'll be with you. And Moses basically says, if you're not going to be with us, don't even send us out because we don't have a chance. The Israelites were weak, and yet they conquered Canaan, how? By the spirit of the living God. There's no point in even starting anything if God isn't with us. And let us hear that. There's no point in any of the things we're ever going to try if God is not the one empowering us, if God is not the one whose presence is with us. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? Do I believe it? Do you believe it? Because here's a follow-up question. If we do believe it, how come? How come prayer is always a top two weakness of almost every Christian that you talk to? Real talk. Okay, how come the prayer meeting is always like the least attended church activity? Why? How come when we have meetings, we spend 95% of the time planning and 5% praying if that and i preach to myself we've had elder meetings and i just to be honest where we're so busy that we just don't pray until the very end real quick james is like i think we should pray and we're like oh yeah you're right i mean seriously christians will go their entire christian lives and never go to the church's prayer meeting one time i mean that's the reality if we believe this, that God is what we need, how can we spend all our time talking about methods? I mean, think about parenting, one of the hardest things to do in the world. You go to a seminar on parenting, it's all about the methodology. It's about education. They want to talk about the merits of public versus private versus homeschool. Where are the gurus who are saying, you know what, you can't change your kids' hearts, so fall on your knees and pray. Only God can do this work. Only he can give them mercy and grace. I never hear these guys talking about it. It's always like if you avoid this, if you take out the TV, if you give them classical education, whatever. I'm into those things too. But you see how it leads people astray. It cuts you off from the one thing that you need. You got pastors trying to be cooler. Okay, we're going to reach the next generation by being cool. And you know what? I would like to be cool. I feel like that would be cool. I wish I was. But coolness never brought the dead to life, and it never will. It never will. Giftedness. Oh, this guy's really gifted. I know he he might not be that mature in the faith, but did you hear him sing? Or uh, this person's so good at public speaking. or, Or what? Giftedness never transferred people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It never did. 
No human being has this power. Not Martin Luther, not Charles Spurgeon, not Corey Ten Boom, my fave, not even John MacArthur, your fave. They can't do what ultimately can only be done by the Spirit of God. It's misplaced faith. So the question is have you been misplacing your faith? Have you been? Have you found yourself thinking, if only we could kind of do more of this, or if only we can get on board this train, if, every, if only every Christian follows this evangelism method, or if only every Christian will, would just read this best-selling book, or if only every Christian just knew about these reformed memes, then the heart of America and the world and, and my children and, and my neighbors and the people around us, they would all be one, no problem. It doesn't work like that. It's misplaced faith. Now, I'm not saying don't care about methods. Of course not. I'm not trying to hate on anyone's ideas specifically. I'm just saying you got to double down on God. You got to put all your eggs in God's basket. Okay, you got to put all your money on God and just say, we're riding or dying with this because God's the only one who has a, a, a chance at all, a hope in this world to deal with all the forces that are against us. And praise God, he can do it easy. Now, look at the text again. Paul phrases this as a question. Do you not know? And it's almost a sort of rebuke. In fact, he does this 10 times in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know this? Do you not know that? He does this because they know some stuff, but they forget. They know things, but then they forget. And I think you guys might know everything that I'm saying, but how often do we forget? It's easy to treat the church bad. It's easy for us to want to go after other things. Paul is like, you already have what you need. You're just shooting yourself in the foot. And this leads to the third and final point. Let's end this. There's a place God says he's going to be. It's with us. But there's a warning too, an injunction. And this is the third point. The image, the indwelling. We have the spirit of God. Third, the injunction. And an injunction is an authoritative warning. The injunction. Now, the text right here, it ends with a warning. So we'll end with that, but I'll give you some encouragement. Look at the text again, both verses. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. The injunction is if you destroy God's temple, you will be destroyed. Now turn with me to John 2. Quickly, John chapter 2. John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Famous story. But early on in Jesus' ministry, he went up to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem wasn't south. Jerusalem was literally a city on a hill. So when he says, you are a city on a hill, they understood what that meant. Okay, Jerusalem was up. And he went to the highest point. He went to the temple. And he found people buying and selling and trading, going on with the business of religion. And Jesus hand makes this whip in the corner. And he drives out all the people, even the animals. Why? Because the temple is not supposed to be about that. Look, Jesus was bold. Okay, he, he wasn't a weak person. Jesus wasn't afraid to speak the truth, even if it was highly unpopular. But it doesn't mean that Jesus was always doing stuff like this. Jesus didn't have a concealed whip permit. You know, he wasn't carrying this whip. He had to make it. Okay, he made it for this occasion. He never used weapons except at the temple. Why does he do this? Why does he react so strongly? Because the temple is that important. And get this, it wasn't the building. Look at verse 18. Keep reading. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Why are you doing this stuff? 
Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But look at verse 21. John tells us how to understand it, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. The temple of his body. It's not the building. It's the body of Christ. And what does the Bible call the church in a different metaphor? The body of Christ. God cares so much about his temple that he will ruin those who ruin it. What is the temple? The church. The ecclesia. The assembly. Now back to our text. You can go back there. The word for destroy here is phthero. Okay, it's kind of hard to say in Greek. But it doesn't just mean to destroy, like physically eradicate. It also means to corrupt or to ruin or to spoil. So if we, the church, right? If we, the church, are the temple of God, and if within the temple we have the very presence of the Spirit of God, and if the presence of God is all that we need, we're set, right? No. Paul says in verse 17 that you can actually mess it up. It's all set up for you, but you can actually mess it up. How? Well, look at the Corinthians. They were doing it. The Corinthians in verse uh, chapter 1, you see that they had divisions among the church. The people are the temple, but when you're divided... A house cannot stand. Chapter 5, they tolerated sexual immorality with certain members. Chapter 6, they had conflict. They were even taking each other to court. Chapter 8, they didn't care about each other's spiritual well-being. People didn't care about, oh, will this stumble other people or not? And it just goes on all the way to chapter 16 to the end. Basically, we can ruin the church in three ways. Let me just summarize it for you. One, with our actions by sinning without repenting and sinning against each other, our sins are not harmless. They affect us and they affect the people that we are called into fellowship with, with our actions, second, with our absence. If the church is the gathered people of God and the temple is the people, what happens if you're not here? What happens if you break fellowship, not showing up, not being connected, not using your gifts to serve others? Over time, it becomes obvious who is forsaking the fellowship? Who is actually making an effort to be connected to people? It goes beyond attendance. It goes beyond just joining a small group or something like that. It's about your heart attitude. It's about your disposition. It's about trying to actually make connections with people. And then three, with our apathy. Because we can do all those things. We can try to live a moral life. We can get plugged into church, but we can make it all about us. And we could care nothing about the spiritual well-being of those around us. What are their needs? What are their preferences? What about them? The church can easily, practically fail to be the temple of God. Look at verse 17 again. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. We're supposed to be holy. And the word temple, it means, uh, the word holy, excuse me, means set apart, literally. We are supposed to be set apart for God different. And let me lay it out for you, okay? Real quick, and then we'll close. See, here's something we might easily miss in the storyline of the scriptures. At the end of the book of Exodus, God gives these painstaking instructions for how to construct the first temple, the tabernacle. Do you remember that? If you're doing a Bible and a year plan, this is the first really hard part to get through, because there's so many details, what color it should be, how, how many uh, how the measurements should go, how many cubits, all these different things, what color uh, the priest's garment should be, how to mix the anointing oil. It's so detailed. And honestly, it can feel irrelevant to us. We can get bored. We don't have a tabernacle, so we think it doesn't matter. But the truth is it actually really matters because when you study it, the temple is supposed to remind us of something. That's why there are all these details. It's supposed to look like something that came before do you know what I'm talking about? Ring a bell at all? The temple was filled with Garden of Eden imagery. Trees and cherubim and gold. See, the temple was supposed to look like a mini Garden of Eden. See, the Garden of Eden was the original liminal space. When God walked with Adam and with Eve, heaven and earth were one. At that point, you didn't need a temple because the whole thing was a temple. And in Eden, get this, everything was good. 
I mean, just think about that. Everything was good. Unlike now, there were no problems. Okay, there was no loneliness, no mental health issues, no cancer, no chronic pain, no bad marriages, no sickness of any kind, no broken families, no hunger, no cruelty, no abuse, no suffering, no pain or death. And that's because there was no sin and no separation from God. But then sin entered into the world through the transgression of Adam and Eve. And through their disobedience, the world fell and death became not just a reality, but an inevitability. So... That being said, when God chose a people and he told them to make this temple and and to make it look painstakingly like a garden made with gold, and when he chose to dwell within that space, what was he doing? He was giving them another Eden, as it were. See, the temple, it symbolized hope in a fallen world, that there is a plan, that God could still be found, that he wasn't done with his people or this world. But that temple was just a building. It's gone now. Hear our text again. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. See, when we're firing on all cylinders, when we are being the church that God saved us to be, we are, in a sense, Eden in a fallen world. We are a blessing in a cursed land. We are a preview of heaven. And we should show the world that God can still be found. Because he's with us. And you say, Jesse, the church, are you serious, man? The church is where I've had the worst experiences. The church is so lame. The church is just ordinary people like us. How could it be the vehicle for God's plan? The church isn't perfect. You're right, far from it. You might think the church has so little of God in it. You might be tempted to reject it and go on to something else. But here's the thing. If the Bible is true, you can search the entire world. Go fly to Israel. You're not going to find God anywhere else because he said, this is where I am going to dwell because the church is Christ's body. And while we are sinners, we are saved sinners by grace. We wouldn't exist without grace. We have the one thing that the world needs and what the world needs right now more than anything else is that grace. Am I wrong? There's a lot more to say, but we'll say this and then close. Paul ends verse 17 by saying, you are that temple. You are. So maybe we just need a mindset shift. Maybe we're just blinded to the reality. You are that temple. The the presence of God is not far, guys. The things that you're looking for, they aren't far. The power to turn the world upside down is not history in the Bible. It's a present reality right here. You don't have to fly to the Holy Land to find a liminal space. Heaven can meet earth right here within this community of flawed, broken, but redeemed people. And God can do and will do things greater than we could ever imagine or think right here and through his church if we just be it. Let's close. I was reading about New Coke and why it failed, and I thought it was interesting See, the Coca-Cola company, they had it all wrong. They were fixated upon the enemy. Okay, they were fixated on the problem, and they created a drink that could beat Pepsi at its own game, that could win the Pepsi challenge. But the problem was they did it by forsaking what they were. They became a more Pepsified version of Coke. And the thing is, the reason why it failed, okay, after all this testing, is they found out later that in a taste test, the majority of people will prefer the sweeter thing every time. Pepsi is sweeter than Coke. New Coke was sweeter than Pepsi. The problem is new Coke was too sweet. So just because people liked it in one sip didn't mean that they would like a whole can of it or a whole cup of it or a whole like big gulp or whatever. In taste tests, new Coke dominated, but then in the stores, it completely flopped. And Coke found out the hard way. So what do they do? They dusted off the old recipe, tried and true. They called it Coke Classic. They slapped that classic on there, and they started selling it again, and it took off. Coke started dominating the market share again because people realized that they didn't really like new Coke. They didn't want something new, and they realized that Coke Classic was actually pretty great all along. And of course, the analogy falls apart. Pepsi still exists, of course. Coke isn't even good for you, okay? So I'm not saying that. 
But you see where this is going, right? I'm not going to lie. There are major challenges facing Christians in the next few years. Really difficult things. I am sure of it. This is not new. There is a war for the souls of your children. As people sound the alarm, I think that that's pretty accurate. And it's always been the case. The powers that be might make living as a Christian a lot harder in America. That has not been the case. That might be new. It might be very, very difficult. You might face persecution in your lifetime in a way that none of our parents, generation, or anyone before us has faced, not at least in America. It's definitely possible. But the Bible isn't saying, okay, new Coke. The Bible is telling us to dust off the old recipe, the tried and true. The answer is actually the church and us being the temple that we were called to be and Eden in a fallen and hostile world, being the church. And that means being a people that's not going after all these different things, but a people where God is first, where prayer is a priority, where fellowship is more than just an optional two-hour hangout, but our very lifeline, where we set aside our petty differences and conflicts and self-centered preferences for the sake of something greater, a unified temple that stands And if we do, if we are the church, the temple of God, then I promise you, I promise you will see God do what only he can do. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we come before you, God. And God, you've given us what we need. You've given us your spirit. And God, you've dwelt among us. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to not turn away from that or to work against that or to ruin that. But I pray, God, that you would help us to step into that and to double down on that. And I pray, God, that you would use us to do your will and your work in this world. God, we look to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.